This morning's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thanks be to God for his glorious word. Thank you, Chip. When I was a child, Christmas was undoubtedly the most anticipated holiday of the year for me. I loved Christmas. I loved, I loved everything about it. I loved, of course, the gifts that you receive. I loved the fact that you get two weeks off of school. I especially loved the lights. Every December, my mom would decorate our front yard. Uh, we had a huge willow tree that stood in the corner, and then we had three other trees that flanked a brick walkway that made its way up to the front door, and I must say that our house looked stunning. I also love the holiday TV shows that they showed every December. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, Frosty the Snowman, Charlie Brown, Christmas, The Grinch. Even though I saw these shows every December, when they came on, I was filled with so much joy and happiness. These are a few of the reasons why when I was young, I anticipated Christmas so much. And this experience of anticipation and waiting and longing and yearning describes accurately the spirit of Advent. As Pastor Lewis mentioned, Advent is the Latin for arrival or coming. During the Advent season, the church waits and longs and celebrates the arrivals of Jesus Christ. We celebrate the the first arrival of Jesus 2,000 years ago when he's born in Bethlehem. But we also celebrate the second arrival of Jesus when one day he will usher in the new heavens and new earth and establish fully the kingdom of God. 
And so Advent is about looking backwards towards the first coming and looking forwards to the second coming. Though there's nothing wrong with getting excited about gifts and lights or Santa and reindeer, if that encompasses the sum total of your excitement, I want to let you know that you're missing out big time. Because as wonderful and and joyous as these things might be, they do not change you, do they? As wonderful as it is to see beautiful lights and to eat turkey and celebrate with your family, they don't bring lasting change to your lives. But the true wonder, the true significance of Advent does. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to take a deep dive into Isaiah 9. And each week, I'm going to unpack a certain feature, aspect of this passage, so that by the end of our journey together, we'll have a, 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 an all-encompassing grasp of why Jesus' coming is so impactful. Because at New Life, we believe that if you experience the arrival of Christ, if you encounter the wonder of Advent, you will never be the same again. Today, we're gonna focus on the first two verses of Isaiah 9. And when you read these first two verses, two themes emerge, the theme of darkness and the theme of light. The first half, I'm gonna unpack darkness. The second half, I'm gonna help us understand what he means by light. Where do we see darkness? Well, verse one begins with, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. And then verse two, the people who walked in darkness, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. Isaiah is speaking metaphorically here and describes the condition of God's people in his day. Around the time he's writing these words, it's about 735 BC. And these were indeed dark days of Israel. Israel lived in fear because there were mighty foreign powers that were rising up and they knew it was only a matter of time before they were attacked. But instead of putting their trust in the Lord, the Lord who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and David, the Lord who pledged protection over his people, Israel turned away from God and put their trust in princes and foreign powers. They made alliances with other empires and said, we want you to protect us. And not only do they turn to foreign powers and make pacts with them, but they turn to other nations and uh, powers in their society. You see, Isaiah gives us a clue as to what darkness he is referring to by the very fact that the very first verse begins with the word but. But there will be no gloom. 
And so verse 1 begins with a word of contrast, saying that verse 1 is different from what comes before. And so to understand what he means by darkness, we're going to look at the end of chapter 8. Verses 19 through 22, Isaiah says this, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And so Isaiah is speaking against the people who are not looking to God's word, but instead looking to the words of mediums and necromancers. He's pleading with his people, don't turn to them, turn to God. Verse 21, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. Here, Isaiah is saying is as a result of their rebellion against God, as a result of turning away from God and to these other idols, God is going to discipline Israel. He's going to bring famine. He's going to even bring exile in hopes that this discipline will cause God's people to turn away from their idols and return and cling to the Lord. But when the discipline comes, Israel doesn't humble herself. Rather, she gets angry. She turns up and looks at God and is enraged with God and says, this is all your fault. Rather than humbling herself and saying, we will go back to you, O Lord, forgive us, they get angry. And so when you you, you turn away from the Lord, all that you're left with is this world. And so in verse 22, and they will look to the earth But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness. Instead of turning to the Lord, they look to this world and they look answers for their societal problems. They look for answers for their existential problems, their psychological problems, but all they're left with is darkness and gloom. If you think about it, when you're living in darkness, it's hard to find the light. By definition, when you're in the dark, you cannot see. And that darkness can be disorienting. I'm reminded of what happened to me and a a few friends of mine many years ago when we were in Taiwan, we were exploring one of the mountains in Taiwan. We came across this long tunnel. I think it must have been at least a half mile long. And at the entrance of the tunnel is this button. And so we pushed the button and we saw a string of lights that lined the wall of the tunnel turn on. And so after the lights turned on, we started to walk. But little did we realize that the lights were on timer. They didn't last forever. And we would discover this the hard way. 
About midway through that tunnel, the lights shut off, and I still remember the gasp that, that we made. It was so dark. I've never encountered such darkness before. It was so dark that it didn't make a difference if your eyes were open or closed. I remember opening and closing my eyes, seeing no difference. You couldn't see the hand in front of your face, nor the, feet, the, the ground beneath your feet. It was so dark that none of us wanted to move because you had no idea if the next step was into a hundred foot hole. And so what did we do? We just waited in silence for the next party to come and turn on the light. And that's the condition that Isaiah sees Israel. They're paralyzed by the darkness, by fear. The word translated as anguish here is also translated as constrict or frozen. Sometimes the pain can run so deep in your soul that your muscles constrict and you're frozen, paralyzed by fear. You feel hopeless. Well, you don't have to live in Isaiah's day to understand that the world we live in is dark. COVID has killed over 5 million people across the globe. It's been almost two years of fighting this disease, and we've just discovered a couple uh, days ago that another variant has risen. Experts fear that this variant is going to extend our fight even longer. And if it's not a virus that's killing us, we're killing ourselves. According to the CDC, the homicide rate in the United States has risen 30% in the last year. It's the highest rise in rates in over 100 years. And this during a quarantine, a lockdown, it's only going to get worse. Homelessness is another huge issue. If you've driven through LA, you know that the number of sidewalks covered in tents continue to multiply. In the last five years, unsheltered homelessness has surged by more than 30%, and we know it's going to get worse once government aid for rent relief expires. Today, we've got all kinds of problems. And we've got no solutions. Some say we need more government. Some say we need less. Some look to the market. Some say the market is to blame. Some look to technology. Some say technology is to blame. We're in the dark. Our country is a mess. No wonder dystopian type movies trend these days. Dystopian type movies resonate with us. Why? Because mankind is gradually losing hope in mankind. How about you? In what ways has the darkness of this world touched you this morning? You feeling sad, upset, frustrated, hopeless, angry? I must confess that I'm dealing with a measure of discouragement 
Just yesterday, I found out that my sister, who has been in South Africa for the last two years, has to remain there. She bought tickets to fly out and celebrate Christmas with us to come next week. But since the variant has risen, her flight's been canceled, and now I'm feeling so horrible for her, who lives by herself in her own apartment, who must remain alone again. It's hard to celebrate when you know a loved one is in distress. You don't have to be a Christian to agree with Isaiah 8, verse 22. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now imagine some of you are thinking right now, Jeff, why so depressing? I thought this was Advent season. I came to church hoping for a pick-me-up. After all, isn't Christmas about good tidings and cheer? Why spend so much time talking about the dark details and misery of this world? Christmas is a time where we shift our gaze away from reality and onto fantasy. And indeed, for many people today, Christmas is just that, an escape for mankind. It's a momentary reprieve from the harsh realities of life so that no matter what you're going through, you can decorate your trees, you can string up some lights, listen to cheerful music, and feel good. For many today, Christmas is nothing more than sentimental nostalgia. Christmas gives us an excuse to suspend reality and to pretend that everything is right in this world. And so if that's your expectation, if that's all Christmas is for you, a distraction from the misery of life, then yeah, this sermon seems very countercultural. But for, Christian, for Christians, Christmas is more than just an escape. We don't have to deny reality. We don't have to minimize it. We don't have to suppress it. Why? Because the Bible tells us that God has dealt with the darkness. He's confronted that darkness and overcome it. As much as Isaiah refers us to the darkness, he also points us to the light. He tells us in verses 1 and 2 that a light will come. And there are three things I want you to notice about this light. First, the certainty of this light. In Isaiah's mind, the arrival of this light is so certain that he actually writes in the past tense. I know it's, it's strange. He prophesies about the future, but describes that future in the past tense. He says in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness not will see a great light, but have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone, not on them will the light shine. 
Like, why is he using such funny grammar? Well, for him, the arrival of the light is so certain, it's a foregone conclusion. It's similar to how sports commentators might describe and call a game. There's two minutes left in the game. The Lakers are up by 25. And what does Chick Hearn say? The, 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 the butter is getting hard. The, the eggs are cooling. This game is over. It's a foregone conclusion. Even though the game hasn't ended, functionally it's ended. And that's what Isaiah is saying. The light, even though the light hasn't come yet, so certain is that arrival, he speaks of it in the past tense. The second thing to notice about this light is the source of the light. The grammar is clear that this light comes from outside the darkness. Verse 2, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The light shines on them. The light doesn't come from them. The light shines from the outside, not from the inside. Lastly, the light will shine in an unexpected place. In the second half of verse 1, Isaiah says, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. What is this? Zebulun and Naphtali he refers to. Well, Zebulun and Naphtali refer to the most northern region of Israel. And because it stood in the most northern region of Israel, it, it was the furthest away from Jerusalem, where the temple was, where the king resided, where the prophets and priests ministered. In other words, it was the furthest away from the epicenter of God's influence. Not only that, but it's also the closest to the influence of foreign powers, of pagan nations. And so you can guess which region of Israel struggled the most when it came to faithfulness to the Lord. Which region was the most unholy, impure, which uh, practiced syncretism and bowed down to foreign idols. It was Naphtali and Zebulun. And so this region was known to be the most corrupt of Israel. And so not surprisingly, Isaiah pronounces judgment and says, contempt will come. And this judgment is realized as this region is the first to fall under the mighty Assyrian empire in seven uh, 32 BC. And yet Isaiah says that this despised region, which is the first to fall, first to be judged, will also be the first to have God's light shine. It will be the first to be glorified. And you'll notice that Isaiah gives other names for this region. Not only is it known as Zebulun and Naphtali, but it is known as the region of Galilee. So dear friends, can you think of who Isaiah is referring to when he's describing this light 
that will come for sure, this light that will come from the outside, this light that will shine first in the region of Galilee. John 1, which we read for our call to worship, tells us that Jesus existed before the world was created, that Jesus is not part of the created order, that he is creator, that he is God, he is outside this world. And then in Matthew 4, verse 13 through 17, we read this. Speaking of Jesus, Matthew writes, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of where? Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here, Jesus begins his earthly ministry in Galilee, the light begins to shine in that region. And what is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus looks to this dying and dark world that dwells in anguish and in thick darkness and pronounces good news I have brought with myself another kingdom, the kingdom of light. And if you trust and believe in me, you can escape and leave this miserable world behind and live with me for eternity in the kingdom of light. John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so he invites us to step out of our dark caves that we live and to step out into the bright open sky of his kingdom and says, live with me here. But of course, in order to make this invitation, in order for us who lived in darkness to enter into his light, Jesus had to do something more than just Invite us. Today, when it's dark, it doesn't take much to turn on the lights. All we need to do is flip a switch. If you have Alexa, you can just say, turn on the lights. Back then, turning on the light was a little more difficult. You had to start a fire. And the only way you start a fire is if you create a force so hard that a spark rises. The only way a fire can shine is if it has fuel to burn, material to consume. Indeed, for Jesus to overcome the darkness, he had to be struck by that darkness. He had to be 
consumed. On the cross of Jesus Christ, the light of the world would be snuffed out. Jesus would swallow our darkness, suffocate in utter darkness, and be entombed in thick darkness. But darkness would not have the last word. Three days later, that tomb would break open. The stone would be rolled away. And to our utter amazement and astonishment, when the stone was rolled away, when the seal was broken, it is not light that floods into that dark tomb, but to our surprise, we see dazzling light shining, breaking forth from that tomb as the light of the world rises in resurrection glory and a symbol of death, the grave becomes the source of eternal life. The light has overcome the darkness. Now you might say, well, if that's true, Jeff, then why is there still darkness in this world? What about all those statistics you rattled off regarding COVID and homelessness and homicide? This is why Advent celebrates the two arrivals of Jesus. You see, the impact of the first arrival is this. It marked the beginning of the end of darkness. When Jesus emerged from the grave, he set an expiration date on darkness, saying, your days are numbered. But when Jesus comes again, you don't have the beginning of the end, you have the end of the end of darkness. When he brings in the new heavens and new earth, we will have no more death, disease, despair, addiction, murder, hatred, racism, discrimination, poverty, tears, and grief. They will not see the light of day because in the new heavens and new earth, there is no more night. There is only day. And so this is what we long for, that day when Jesus will finally complete everything that he started with his first coming. And as those who trust in him we look back and we look forward. And this dual looking back and forward gives us hope and joy, not as a way to distract ourselves from the darkness or deny the darkness, but to confront it and say, even still, you do not win. I have hope. I can celebrate. And as Christians, we're called to do more than just wait in this season. The New Testament describes followers of Jesus Christ as children of light. More than just waiting and hiding ourselves from the darkness and cocooning ourselves in our homes, God calls us to shine, to confront the darkness and shine where light cannot be seen. 
just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, God calls us to reflect the light of the sun, the Son of God. And so this Advent season, God is inviting us to think and consider how we can shine his light. If you know someone struggling with depression and anxiety, invite that person to our next Renew meeting that meets on December 12th. If you know someone who doesn't know Jesus or who doesn't have a church home, invite them to our Christmas celebration on Sunday, December 19th. I'm so thankful for the response of our church to our family, family's forward drive. Last year, I think we had a little over 40 families that we adopted. This year, we were able to adopt 99 families. But if you missed out on that or want to do more for the underprivileged, then know that our New Life Kids is organizing a, a, an air mattress drive. We're partnering with an organization who has identified that the homeless community in Santa Ana are in need of air mattresses. And so we can serve the underprivileged in yet another way. This season, may we not only hold on to hope of the both arrivals of Christ, but may we also shine the light of Christ so that this world can understand that Christmas offers more than just lights, music, and pumpkin spice lattes, but that the ultimate joy and hope of Christmas is about Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that Jesus brings a hope that is so real and so powerful that we don't have to deny the darkness. We don't have to run from it. We don't have to minimize it or escape from it. We can confront it, engage it, and even shine the light of Christ and overcome it. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you have given us Jesus, that because he swallowed the darkness, we can now feel his light and shine his light. We're forever grateful, O oh Lord. Use us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.